This episode of the Survivors of Addiction podcast is produced by me, Stephanie Mendenhall, and Oregon Sound Recording. Music is titled We Are the Champs and is by Reek Durer Productions. It's going to be fun. <laughs> After spending most of their lives in active addiction and doing time in prison, Brandon and Christy, who you're going to meet in a minute, changed the trajectory of their lives when they found recovery. Join them as they talk about their differing viewpoints and reveal what it takes to be a survivor of addiction. Y'all ready for this? Mm-hmm. All right, you guys. We are super glad you guys could join us today. Um, my name is Brandon Orr, and this is... Christy Lashoberg. And we are excited to launch our very first episode of Survivors of Addiction. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this as much as we are. We want to talk about some edgy things. We want to talk about some things that a lot of people won't talk about. I don't want to quite call it taboo, but you take from it what it is. Life is a journey, and ours took us on some interesting turns. The destination for Christy and I were both the same. Prison, and finally, we found long-term sobriety and recovery. Woo! Right? Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. Within the within these uh, 12 episodes that we're going to pull off here, um, wonderfully, I should say, um, we're going to be talking about, you know, what does treatment look like? We got, we're going to talk about measures. We're going to talk about um, things that not ordinary podcasts are going to talk about. And we think it's important because we really want to get everybody on the edge of their seats. We want people to think. We want people to think differently about recovery. We want recovery to become the epidemic and not just quiet behind the scenes. Um, For me personally, um, my addiction started at a real young age. Um, Unfortunately, I just didn't have a lot of love in my life. And that's where I'm going to start with that. It's kind of hard to talk about for me um, in this setting, but I'm going to do my best to do to speak my views about my beliefs and what I have. And Christy, how you think? What do you think? Well, I think it's great that we can talk about addiction and that we're both um, did had completely different lives, but like you had said in the beginning that we ended up in the same place. Mm-hmm. And so just like you, I think a lot of us, we start from a young age, whether it's the actual drug or the actual alcohol or the trauma. And so I love that you are going to entrust us with talking about your history, and I'm going to do the same. Oh, you guys better be ready for this. So like I said, um, this is going to be something interesting that we have no clue what we're doing here, but we're going to wing it right off the seat of our pants and it's going to be amazing. And I'm just glad you guys can join us. So I'm going to start off by a little bit about telling you a little bit about Brandon. When I was about five years old, um, I had a tragedy happen um, with my mother that no kid should have to ever go through. Um, and that was September 25th, 1984. Do not laugh about how old I am, you youngins out there. <laughs> um, but I, my mom died at a young age. And mm-hmm. my father, you know, he did the very best he possibly could with two boys and then two more than with his mom. He had four sons. Um, but my brother and I, you know, um, after that day, it traumatically changed our life forever. Um, I also want to say that the things that I speak of, I love my father. My father was my rock. 
He is still one of my best friends. He just did the very best he could raise us, and that mm-hmm. was in an alcoholic lifestyle. Yeah. You know, um, he worked at a bar most of his life. Um, at about seven years old, um, I was diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, ODD. And for those of you guys who don't know, it's oppositional defiance disorder. I guess I wasn't too thrilled with authority figures, um, which I didn't even know I was diagnosed that till I was about 15 or 16. Um, but that's what they did. And when they diagnosed me, you know, they put me on a plethora of, mm. of pharmaceuticals, such as Ritalin, Wellbutrin, Prozac. Like wow. they tried me on all kinds of stuff at seven years old, you know, um, kind of the hard part about being raised up in the eighties is they were still experimenting on what would work with the kid who has a superpower that we're going to say he's hyper. Right. So <laughs> My father did the best he could, um, but they put me on these medications. Those medications, they kind of changed my uh, perspective on life. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I went to school, like, I'm not going to fib. Like, when I went to school and I wasn't on Ritalin, I couldn't focus much. Mm. But when I, was in, when I wasn't on them, I was all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I guess my father really thought I needed them, and, and so did the doctors. So I took those till I was about 13 years old, and I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada. Um, go pack and I just found that I wasn't getting love from my father the way that most kids were from their parents and you mentioned about your mom I'm sure that was traumatic well not just for me but what about for my dad right absolutely you know my dad was I was raised up with an alcoholic Mm. you know and he was a functional alcoholic, like super functional, like never missed a day at work. Um, always had food in the cupboard, you know, but he just didn't show us love. So what I did to find that love is I went to the streets. And you were already on all those other medications. Right. You know, I wonder about like if you had a chance, like if you weren't on all of those medications and you were just Brandon that was bouncing off the walls and hard to control in class, I can picture that. I bet you're really cute. Oh, man. <laughs> I was in a lot of trouble, but that's just, you know, that's nor here nor there. But I, you know, thank you because that probably was pretty adorable. But uh <laughs> I did. I I had some mental health issues that, you know, back then mental health wasn't a big thing. And um, when I turned 13, we moved over here to Oregon. That's a story I'm not trying to get into, but we moved over here to Oregon and uh, um, I was lacking love. So I went and found it elsewhere. And when I found it, it was on the streets. And on the streets, it seems to be everywhere, right? Aren't they always trying to recruit? Well, it is. It is everywhere, but it's also about where you look. Yes. You know, because, yeah, there's there's a there's a Christian house across the street that will love you. Or there's a trap house on the other side of the street that will love you. I made my decision. Such a great point. You know what I mean? I made my choice. I made my choice to walk over to the trap house. Why? Probably because they were smoking cigarettes and it looked fun. It looked edgy. It like looked edgy. But that's what, that's what I was raised up with, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went over there and then I found out that I could sell my Ritalin. Mm. Well, how old? 13 years old. And I'm telling you right now that that was probably, now that I look at it, it probably was a mistake at that time it was because it all leads us to where we're supposed to be. Um, but 
once I found out I can make money by selling my drugs and, you know, my father, he, like I said, he was a functional alcoholic, but he also bought us pro wing Velcro strap shoes and he bought us Wrangler 999 jeans from Walmart. Wasn't Wrangler popular in Nevada? No, definitely not Nevada. In Oregon, most definitely. But, you know, like we had these clothes that I, that, that didn't look cool and they weren't fashionable in school, you know? Kids are wearing Levi's and I'm wearing rustlers, you know? Yeah. So when I found out at 13 years old that I can sell some drugs and probably get a pair of Nikes, mm. guess what Brandon did? Yeah. I went to go buy me a pair of Nikes at 13. Mm. So I grew up pretty fast, right? I had realized that I had to take care of myself and my little brother as well at the same time while my dad was at work or at the bar, you know? So backing up at 13 years old, I found out I could sell my pills and then... um that's when I found meth. Mm. That's when I found methamphetamine was in the trap house. And at I, 13? 13 years old, yeah. And wow. I was watching. So I, I never want to get too descriptive and I never want to glorify what my addiction looks like. But there, so I apologize if it found, sounds like it is, but I'm just going to give a little story, a little, little back play. These guys, they were 15, 16, maybe 14. They were doing lines and I knew what cocaine was from TV, but I didn't know what methamphetamine was for dang sakes. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know what that shit was. So I watched him do these lines and they were starting to tear up and cry. Like, I'm like, I ain't doing that. It looks <laughs> that like does, it hurt. That does not look attractive. So, right. And so this girl <laughs> says, well, I'm a diabetic and I have a needle. Wow. Right off the jump. Right off the jump. Wow. So, you know, after I did that, you know, I just kind of fell into that lifestyle you know, and that progressed for, shoot, till I was about 29, 30-ish, wow. on and off, in and out of jails, committing crimes. Um, I refused to glorify because I really like the recovery story of my story better than the addiction story. But to let you, ladies and gentlemen, and Christy as well, know a little bit about, you know, where I was, you know, I did that for a long time, in and out of jail. It, it, it really pumped up my criminality, how I thought. Um, I ended up with a convict code. Mm. I ended up, you know, believing snitches get stitches and stuff like that. And that's just, you know, and that's just not how I want to live today. But then, you know, I was a married man and I did, I, uh, my wife um, cheated on me with one of my best friends. I had another best friend die and another best friend get 10 years and methamphetamine wasn't numbing it. So I went to its older brother, heroin. Wow. And, well, <laughs> needless to say, that snatched my soul right from my mm. body. Um, but I wasn't who I was in my addiction with meth. I totally was a changed person, and, and I became a little evil, to wow. be honest with you. You know, like, it's a soul snatcher. So you never got a chance to even grow up. Like, I'm like, uh, like as a young boy, like I, I look at some of the people in my life and I think, oh, they're only 14. They're right. still, you know, trying to right. skateboard. And do I join the football team or right. do I no, not? I have no clue what it's like to open up a present on Christmas and see a big will. Wow. I have no clue what it's like to open up a brand new box of Legos. I have no clue what it's like putting your bicycle together with your father. Mm. But I am I'm not mad about it, though. Right. You know, I am not mad about it and I hold no grudges, but no, I don't. Mm. So you're right. I did. I had to grow up really fast. And with that being said, I had a brother that was a year and a half younger than me who I didn't want to see the destruction that I was already living and I was trying to protect him from it at the same time. So now I'm a, I'm a protector. 
I'm a guider, and I'm also a junkie. Mm. You know, so it was hard to grow up and try to be a kid at the same time. That's why I kind of think I skipped school a lot too. You know, like I couldn't find, quote unquote, I couldn't find time for school in my life. Yeah, and I'm sure students were not your people. Nah, man. Right. Well, they were if they had money. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like they were if they had money. they want a little something on the side. You know what I mean? Like they were if they had money. But, you know, um, let's fast forward it to uh, where I was at with my ex-wife. I Wait, and how old were you? uh, So I was about, this was in... 2008, um, I'm the worst at math. Like I said, we just discussed I wasn't really in school a lot. So um, it was in 2008, Mm -hmm. and um, I started using heroin. And so I was 30. Um, I (laughs) lost, uh, I had a a trio of a shitstorm, I'm going to call it, in like a two-day period, three-day period, and I went to using heroin, and I used heroin for until almost four years ago. So, you know, my, my story isn't like everybody else's, but it resembles a lot of people's, Yeah, you know? So I don't feel bad for me. I don't, I don't hold a grudge against people in my life because of the decisions I had made. You have the longest eyelashes right now. (laughs) And I just really believe like, Everything that I had done has led me, especially today from doing what I do now for a living, uh, me being peer support, I believe wholeheartedly like my higher power, which is God, aligned me all of, all of that direction so I could be able to help people today and make connection with people. So is that because um, that you were in a place of joy, that you were in a place of helping people? Is that why you now can look back and not blame that you can take responsibility for your actions? Because a lot of people in recovery or in addiction right now, you know, it's hard to see past your pain, your trauma, you know, because those were things that happened to you as a child. But yet, because you're in this place you are now, you are taking responsibility and maybe taking a little bit off of, you know, some of the things that happen, which is a really healthy place to be in. I'm just curious for those listening that are maybe still in the addiction to say, yeah, but this happened to me or this is what's happening to me. How do you get from blaming to owning it all? It's called accepting. It's called accepting. Yeah. It's accepting your shit, right? Like you got it. Like, so they have all these crazy lingos in the rooms and in recovery and believe it as much as I can't stand them because they're super cliche they super matter mm-hmm. you know like acceptance you have to accept your own shit you have to stop co-signing all your own shit mm. that's what it is yeah you know and, and and you know thank you for that question because in reality it took me a long time to even understand what that meant you know I have to own what I did mm. you know I have to continue a four step every day Right. Make amends, make amends, write it down, pen to paper. You know, um, fortunate for me, I get all my recovery. Well, more than most of my recovery from the Bible, Mm. you know, and it's it's forgiving. And one is forgiving myself. Yeah. You know, of the things that I've done, because I can't go around and make amends to 30 years worth of people I hurt. That would be a long ass list. Bro, I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) I wouldn't have a home. I would be busy making amends. I'd be doing the my name is Earl list, and I ain't trying to do that. You know what I mean? But you know what? You are 
making amends in a different way. Like just this morning, helping a gal that you just met that was cold last night, helped her, brought her to people that can help her. And that's that's where the deep amends comes from. That's what— Well, I was also called to do that. Yeah. Right? But don't you think everybody is called to do something? Oh yeah, yeah. But it's 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 if you have the ears and heart to hear and understand it, and if you're an acceptance, acceptance. to what your spot is, or the things that you have done, or the 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 road that you're on. Yeah, now. I believe we're called to do this podcast. Yes, I believe it. This is I really believe. exciting. Yeah, we're, we're you guys are about to make connection, y'all. Hope you know that. <laughs> Opposite of addiction is connection. We know that. <laughs> so thank you for letting me tell a little bit about my story. I appreciate um, that. I really want to. I really want to get into my prison time real quick. Okay. So I want to get into the last the last day of my the last day of use is what they call it. The and what rooms. year was that that you were in prison? The um, last My last day of use was March twenty fourth, twenty seventeen. Um I was sitting oh, I did a lot of great stuff to go to prison, let me tell you. But I was sitting at a motel here in Medford, Oregon. Um, looking at the Bear Creek, dirty little creek back there in the middle of the night. And I had a pocket full of drugs, money. Um, I had a new car down there and I had a motel room that wasn't in my name, but it was mine and it was full of people and I never felt so alone. And I was tired of running and I told myself, at least in Jackson County Jail, I'd have my own bed. Mm. Wow. Right? Like that's, that was my moment of clarity. Wow. That was the the shining light that I'll never forget because in 30 years, I can't remember any of my uses really. I can remember times where I was, but this was what I remembered the most of. And how, how beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. So I was wanted by Homeland Security and I made a, I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to run and hide anymore. So I knew I was wanted. And I'd finally got caught. I don't have to go into descriptive detail about what that looked like, but I finally went to Jackson County Jail. And there's a deputy in there named Higgins. He's amazing. Big Higgins, not little Higgins. Big Higgins, he's we were we were cool, man. Me and this guy, we we were we were all right for a Boise State fan. He's all right. But uh he told me, and I wasn't on probation at the time when I got caught. I'd already been released, uh, been terminated off probation. And he's like, Brandon, you might be going home. And I'm like, Whoa. I don't know about that. And he's like, you're probably going home. So about three hours later in the holding cell, he comes in. He says, Brandon, I don't know what you did, but you ain't going nowhere for a long time. And I said, okay, well, I'm up to about a quarter ounce a day in heroin. You're going to have to bring me about 10 pairs of pants outside my cell because (laughs) this ain't going to be pretty. But, you know, we giggled about it. And when I went to prison, um, the judge judge sentenced me to – he wanted to send me to – Rehabilitation Center. Mm. And I respectfully declined. Why? Because I knew that I was going to run from mm. the Rehabilitation Center. Is that center. because the drug was still calling you? I was in jail for 106 days. It, I mean, it was still calling for yeah. sure, but I wasn't feeling for it. But I just knew I wasn't that, wasn't, that wasn't how I was supposed to be done. Like, I needed to do more work on myself. And if you put me in a state where I'm able to run as an addict and me being the gazelle I am, I'm going to run. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like I— Asked the judge, I said, Your Honor, can you please send me to the penitentiary? And he said, He never hears that. Ever. Yeah. Said no one ever. So he respectfully said, Why? I told him why. 
and they gave me 20 months um, in Oregon DOC. And I did 13 on 20. And let me tell you something, like my whole life I was told prison was scary, this, that, and the third. And I'm going to let you know right now, like if you go up there with an agenda to continue your life of criminality, yes, it's scary. Mm -hmm. It's scary. But if you're going up there to absolutely make a positive impact in your life, like I did, like I was done. I was 38 years old, 39 years old. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm looking around in prison and I see 56 year olds that are doing 13 months set for their seventh or eighth time. Mm. Wow. I don't want that. Yeah. So I had to work on Brandon. So I did a lot of work on Brandon. And let me tell you, like the work wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. But it wasn't hard mm. because I wanted it. I was going to say, is that because your heart was already ready? Yeah, it, it was more than ready. I believe like, I believe like if you really want to change in your life, you'll do the work necessary for the change in your life to make, for you to make it happen. But if drug is your best friend... Well, it was my best friend. Right. And I, like I said, my last day of use, I, I saw a lot of betrayal in that best mm. friend. So it was time to let it go. Wow. You know? Wow. What about you? First wow. off, you guys, that There's was a, a lot. lot easier to say than I thought it was going to be today. So, um, Christy, I know, that, I know that you ended up in prison. I know that you have a magnificent story, too, that I – so opposite, but so the same. Mm. <laughs> um, can you give us a little bit about – where, how you ended up in this chair doing this podcast with us? Yeah, you know, our like you said, our stories are very different, but they're but they're all the same. We all have the same gory, horrific um, things that that the drug does, and that's all the lies and betrayal to ourselves and to our families, and then just the ripping out your heart and the people that you love and that love you, and it's like. Um, if we can get to a point where we are just done, mm. that's the most beautiful mm. thing. So um, when I first started, I was, I'd like to say I was super young. I was a baby when I first got introduced to Demerol and morphine. And so I was in the hospital a lot as a child. A baby. A baby, wow. yeah. I think my first operation, I was a few hours old, and so obviously I don't remember, but I'm I'm certain that I got the drugs then. And because I was born with medical issues, that became like I had a doll, a teddy bear, and my Demerol. <laughs> I swear I loved it just as much as I did my doll. I spent a lot of time in the hospital and... Um, you know, I learned how to combat fear and pain, emotional and physical, with that beloved shot that I got. Can I ask you why you were in the hospital? Well, I was born with something called Vocteral Syndrome. Okay. And so it affects um, three out of the five, either vertebrae, cardio, trach, anus, limbs, renal, esophagus. As a, you were born with this. Born with that, yes. Oh, my dear friend. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah. So, you know, they rushed me into surgery. Thank God. You know, I've, I've gone through lots of operations and I'm really healthy now. I have not had any health issues in a lot of years, I think, too, because... Or medications. Or medications, which blows me away. I mean, when I say that being a young child in the hospital, I was at Chalk, which is Children's Hospital of Orange County, and I still remember the leather. This was back in the 60s and the 70s, so I still remember the leather um, ottomans, and I would just roll around on the ottomans. Instead of being afraid of what was going to happen, I knew I'd have to go in. I would just say to myself, wow, you're going to get those paint shots. And, and I, was that exciting to you? Yeah, it was wow. exciting to me. It was exciting because my parents were very fearful. Of course, they're, they're thinking of surgeries, and I'm thinking of Demerol. And I'd never right. talked about it. And so because of, um, you know, I learned how to really looking back, I learned how to manipulate nurses. You know, I would watch them come in, um, you know, I, well, I, I would be playing with my friends. Um, my dad was so good about bringing friends in to see me. Mm-hmm. And so we would be playing like old maid. And so I'd say, okay, guys, hold on. I would watch that I could get my shot in four hours. So I'd say, hold on. It was this whole production. That's A it's, process, right? Yeah, and it really um, – I was always too embarrassed to talk about it. But now I understand the psychology of it. But I would say, hold on, and I'd, like, hunker down in my bed, and I'd and press the call nurse button, and I'd say, hi, can I have my pain shot? Really, like, sweet. And I really didn't need it for um, phys- physical pain a lot of times. Um, I mean, yes, I did right after operations, but through emotions and stuff, I didn't. And so the, gir- the gal would get on the phone and she'd say, I'll be right there, honey. Sorry, I'm late. And I'd say, oh, that's okay. And, you know, I... How old were you? Oh, ever. Oh, boy. At that point when I was playing Old Maid was sixth grade. Okay. Yeah. Just trying to get a vision on the timeline on that. Yeah. And so the nurse would come and I'd watch her little white, um, you know, those little nurse shoes that they have, like walking. And I literally, my heart would flutter, like I'm going to get relief. And so, you know, my friends would leave and I would still be there and I would be there all night, every day. For In, in the past, they used to leave you in the hospital for weeks and weeks. You'd have a kidney infection or kidney right. stone. You'd be in there for weeks. So that was my best friend in there. So I just learned how that it was my growing up that Demerol and dolls or Demerol in school or Vicodin in school or work were just side by side. Now, you said something in there um, that you were about to get relief. Yeah, it was always a relief. Like I would literally, like you had said and mentioned, it was – it was it was a whole thing. Like they would come and, you know, they would put the first they would apologize for being late. And I would say, oh, that's OK. And, you know, trying to be as sweet as possible. And they um, would get it all ready and get the needle and put it in my IV. And I literally would just like I didn't want anyone to talk to me. I just wanted to have the whole experience of having the, you know, Demerol go in, in. the sixth Great. It was really before that, but yes, definitely. Wow. So the fact that I'm sober now, and the fact that I, um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't need anything for my emotional stability or um, pain is just, it's just amazing. And so, growing up, I, I always had something to change the way that I felt. So in ninth grade, when we we're going to parties, and you know, they get beer, and all I want to know is how many beers is it going to take for me to get drunk. To get drunk or to feel it? To get drunk. Oh, okay. 
I don't know why I, re- I, I remember saying that. That's and specifics. They, I wanted to know how, how much is it going to take because I wasn't familiar with um, beer. I was familiar with Demerol, but I had no idea what beer would do. But I always wanted to change the way I felt, partly because I liked it. And the other part, just because I'm a little bit of a risk taker and adventurer, so I'm curious. And I think all of all the drugs that I had gotten and I still did life, I still went to school, I still got great grades. And so I was always pu- always pushing the envelope. Right. And I liked it. Oh, boy. Now, that didn't lead me to prison. Doing methamphetamine as a as an adult is what led me to prison. But Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. Well, I got married, and um, I was actually married to a police officer. Well, oh, man. He was a police officer a few—I think a few months after we, we got married, and he was— Told one- you this would be edgy. <laughs> and while we, we were married, I—, um, I took pills and on my way to pick up my sister from the airport and I got pulled over by his sergeant, which was like the most horrific thing you could ever have happen because you try to pretend you're okay. And then um, that's when I knew kind of the gig was up of doing pills and getting away with it or people making excuses or me was up. And so I went to rehab. And it was the first time I had ever not taken anything for a length of time. And I was shocked of how I, I remember thinking, I can't believe I can hear like birds chirp or music sounded better. It was just a whole like maybe like, you know, a blanket lifted off to be like, wow, this is how the world moves around. So it was a trip. When you did that, what were they what were they winging you off of at that time? Uh dilated. Demerol, or not Demerol at that point, Dilaudid and Vicodin. And you, how were the withdrawals then for you? How how did you handle those? It was hard. I was in a hospital. But see, at the time I was working, I was working at Nordstrom selling shoes and taking Dilaudid. I just, they, it just went hand, hand in hand for me. So I'm a, so that. Oh, I could imagine. That being said, you know, so many of us that are in addiction, you know, our our survivors. We um, just, you know, apropos the the title of the of the podcast, we're survivors. We can push. We're entrepreneurs. We we um, we aren't wimpy. We 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 do a lot of hard stuff. So to be able to go to work and work forty hours a week and be a top salesperson and do pills every day, um, you know. So now life right now is so easy. It's fun and easy and just joyful because I'm I'm not having to manage any sort of addiction, and so um, I ended up. It's interesting you say that about your wife and having an affair, and that happened to me as well. After right. I got sober, I was sober for five years. We were gonna adopt, and my husband had an affair in the middle of our adoption, which was devastating. I'm sorry. Yeah, because I couldn't have kids, and. Um, so my father was dying of cancer, and I had been sober. I was sober for a while. Um, at that point, almost 10 years, and I relapsed. I was in the hospital for a kidney issue, and um, the nurse said, hey, honey, I'll get you a pain shot. And I was alone, and that was like that moment that I thought, I don't need it. Really? But I really want it. I wanted a relief. I just wanted nobody to talk It was like to your me. teddy bear back, right? It was, yeah. Like that, like Linus's blanket, you yeah. know? Yeah. 
And I knew that I shouldn't make that decision. And I knew right then I was going down the wrong path. Mm. But I didn't know that that path was going to lead me to prison. Mm. because I took that shot, and then they gave me a bunch of Vicodin to go home with, and I couldn't stop. And I was seeing somebody that had relapsed. He called me to come help him, and I did, and he he had um, done meth. I picked him up. I took him to the hotel. I came. I went back to the place I picked him up at that he had gotten the meth, and I said, let me try this. Uh-oh. And I thought, well, that, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And I thought, well, that will help me not take the pills. That's how crazy our thinking is. But it was true. But you also didn't know. I want to give you a little bit. It is crazy thinking, but you didn't know what addiction really, really, really was then. Did you? I knew what addiction was, but I thought, I knew what pill addiction was. I didn't know what meth addiction was. I didn't know that the addiction can, um, you know, carry over the way that it did. Oh, yeah. It uh, it doesn't have a... Well, I thought meth. That's that's hardcore. I can just do a little <laughs> oh, yeah. and I cannot do pills and then I will go on my way and it'll be over. Addiction is a demon with many masks. It is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I did it. I At the time, I had a wardrobe styling business that was really successful that I loved. But once I tried that meth, I couldn't stop. And right. so I stopped doing my business. We ended up selling it because I could not go with my clients and not be high, which was devastating. That that was the start of my, like, so disgusted with myself because I stopped doing the thing that I love the most. And um, we ended up selling meth to some people, including one was a priest in Connecticut. And he he had been being followed and we got caught and arrested in Las Vegas. And I did prison time for, I, I got a five-year federal prison sentence. Asked someone who was married to a police officer who used to just bring lunch to my husband in jail. That was the closest I ever came to any of that. And now you're there for a five-year stay. Five-year sentence. The whole in time the I was shocked. Fe- in a federal penitentiary. Yeah. Candy bar criminal out the door. Yeah. <laughs> candy bar yep. criminal, is that a term? Yeah, yeah <laughs> that, that is. That. That's, so that's, sorry, that's what we say. That's what a state folks say because you fed, you fed cats or you do serious crimes. We're just doing candy bar crimes to get in the state pen. <laughs> you guys do some big time stuff to get into feds. That is not right. But it's so true. Like the feds, they don't play around. They come for you for a reason. If the if the feds are knocking on your door, is that you why you think it's because you were just selling a bag of meth? Is that why um, the one time I was in Oklahoma that was state because um, federal was full on my journey through the five years, and there was a gal. She was like nine months pregnant, and she said. Are you fed? And I didn't know if that was a good answer, if I should say yes or no. And I looked at her, and she said, you're fed, right? And I said, yes. And she goes, sit down here on my mattress. And I was like, she said, sit down. So I sat down on her mattress. She was pregnant, and she ended up beating up another girl, and it was a nightmare. But I didn't know what if, if fed or stayed. I didn't understand what that Yeah, meant. there's two differences. I understand. So what, did, what, what, what kind of work did you do on yourself while you were in prison? Did you do work on yourself while you were in prison? That's all I did. Oof. Work. Because I was shocked that I was there. I knew I was smart. I knew I was not someone who belonged in prison, quote unquote, whatever that was. I, um, I, I, I was embarrassed because I had lots of opportunity as a child growing up. And here I am in prison. 
It's it was it was really surreal. Really, for day after day after day, I was shocked that I was in there, and I um, had a hard time even breathing on a regular basis. Like I needed to breathe, and so I. Um, Why? Just because it took my breath away once you stop the drugs and you really are faced with yourself. There's no more um, denying. You're just there with yourself alone in a prison cell by yourself for days. Right. Yeah. And what do you do? What do you do? There was well because I was in a um, medical center. One, um, there was a lot of morphine there, and they would and there was girls that would chop the lines right next to my face. Oh man! And they say, "Come on, Christy," and I, I, I'm for me, I'm certain it was God because I said, "There is no way I'm going to be in here and do that. If I'm in here and if I do that, then my life is over." I knew that. So did you just? Respectfully decline? I respectfully decline several times, time and right. time again, time and time again. And um, and I, yeah, I worked on myself. I found out who Christy was. I learned that I liked to do art. And I learned that I running helped me get rid of a lot of the anxiety, walking right. first, running next. And, yeah, I just really poured into myself through painful, horrific experiences, like devastating I want to give you major kudos right here real quick because I do because (laughs) why first off congratulations on finding the strength within you to say no in a setting that has so much negativity Yeah. because personally when I got to prison I seen the same thing chopping lines on the bunks getting ready and I don't even know what it was but I know for my first couple months like I had to fight with myself not Mm. to try to get involved Mm. you know what I mean because I only knew one thing, and that was the convict code, dude. Mm. And I really didn't want it. And that's when I finally asked for a graveyard shift job so I couldn't be around all that. And I pretty much was, I pretty much did all my time by myself. So you set yourself up for success because yeah. you knew that if you went that way, that it was going to be all over. Yep. And yeah. because of me, I've, so I didn't know this, but my diagnosis for ADD, ADHD, and ODD, and LMNOP, and all these cra- <laughs> crazy things that they gave me as a kid, they would still be. No- noted as an adult, which I didn't know about in my in my criminal record mm. when I went to prison. So they put me in a behavioral health unit. So I couldn't go work in the kitchen. So I was pretty much in the dorm and I was on the yard and I couldn't get a job unless it was an in-house job in the dorm. So like I sat there for three months fighting myself, bored as hell, not wow. knowing what to do. Wow. So once a, once a graveyard uh, laundry position came open, Brandon had the first hand up. I'm and, trying to picture you alone oh, for three man. months. Well, I mean, I was surrounded <laughs> by I was sur- I was surrounded by people, but I was also fighting yeah. this thing in my head called my addiction. Right. You know, the enemy. You know, because constantly two bunks down, somebody's doing lines. Three yeah. bunks down, somebody's smoking cigarettes, which I didn't mind that. But in the bathroom stalls, they're smoking pot, and I'm like, it was everywhere. Mm. So I had to find find like a common ground with myself. Like Brandon, we made promises to myself. You know, so I want to give you major kudos on that because it was hard. That was probably one of the hardest things in prison. Like everybody, people say walk in the yards hard. No, try not try saying no to free drugs in prison. And what about um, fights? Did you guys get in fights? Fights and sex. So there was none of that weird sex stuff in prison, to be honest with you. But there was fights, of course. Like, mm-hmm. and and for me, I didn't get in a fight until about a week, until about a, a week until I hit the gate. It was something that had to happen i guess some respect thing that had to happen 
so that happened. But I mean, I was able to stay away because like I said, I slept during the day and I worked during the night. Wow. Sometimes I had one more person with me, but most of the time I was by myself. But once I hit about a month till I hit the gate, they relieved me of my job and gave it to somebody else. So I was awake during the day and just some some spat of disrespect happened. And everybody knows in prison that respect is a kind of a must. It goes, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So something happened. Somebody disrespected me and I was told I had to handle it. I didn't want to, mm-hmm. but I was kind of demanded by the shot yeah. caller. So I yep. just I just did it. Mm-hmm. Just, you know what I mean? And got just away with it. it. And the cops seen it and they were cool. They're like, look, dude, you know, like they know, like the cops know. Yeah. But like getting back, who like your time in prison did that help you with a mindset to want to get out and help people? Or is this something you planned on doing? Um, I, I knew the whole— Because you're so good at it. I knew, oh, thanks, Brandon. I mean— So were you. Peanut butter and jelly, baby. <laughs> I mean, we do this. Well, there there was a gal. She was almost 90, and she was in— She had come to um, prison. 90. 90. That had come to the women's jail in— Or the women's prison. It was a detention center in Rhode Island for 20 years every Tuesday. Imagine having that commitment. Going to a prison for 20 years every Tuesday, right? So, number one, I, you know, I was someone that worked a lot and had my own business. So, I respected that alone. I want to know who this lady is that has that much commitment, you know? And so, and sticks to it every Tuesday for 20 years. For 20 years. Yeah. So, I wanted to always be around those people that were doing. admirable things. And so, and I needed to breathe. So I went in there and I said, you know, it it was a little church thing and she just loved everybody up. And so I said, you know, I'm not finding Jesus in jail. That I'll find him when I get home because, you know, I just, it was a cliche. And she said, she put her little hand on mine and she said, honey, this is where he has your undivided attention. Amen. And, you know, for some reason, when she said that, um, my whole body got warm and I cried and I said, well, that is very true. You look like you're about to tear up right now. It's true because I thought he does have all my time. Right. And he wants it. And I would try to tell her, I'm not going to believe in saints. She was Catholic. And she said, oh, honey, you don't need to worry about that. She she just had an answer for everything that I said. And she just wanted me to love myself. Well, yeah. Every Tuesday for 20 years, she's going to have some answers. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, she had a lot of answers. She's heard a lot from a she, lot of ladies, I bet. And she even went into the jail, the part where the girls wouldn't come in the room. And she'd just wait for them to play their spades game and— you know, shuck and jive, and then she would spades, walk. Spades, how yeah. cute. <laughs> Is that cute? That's cute. Did you guys play spades? No, we play pinochle. Oh, I didn't play that. And so she would walk by, and she would just look at the girls and say, I love you. You look great today. And I would, so I. she was my first person that I saw that was just of deep service, and my heart still gets really emotional. I just think that I saw what, I saw what she did for me, what she did for the other women, and um, yeah, and I knew I wanted to emulate that for sure thank you for sharing that Mm. i wish i hope she's still out there doing that good deed um so who believed in you and encouraged you when you first got out of prison oh boy i don't think it was myself because i wasn't sure about myself i knew that i wasn't going to i knew that i had a lot of time away from the drug and i was that wasn't really my temptation at all but 
I was I was shamed from where I was and right and so I moved to a new state in Oregon instead of California. Welcome home. Thank you. And so I didn't know what was going to happen. I had no clue. I went to a halfway house. I still am friends with the gal who gave me a pair of jeans to try on and let me have these jeans. Someone coming from a nice house on Laguna Niguel with lots of stuff to coming home with nothing. Nada. No job. Starting over. I was a wardrobe stylist with no clothes. <laughs> Refresh. <laughs> Refresh. That was hard. Yeah, but I bet you acclimated quite well. I did. I did. And, you know, I think um, I had a lot of amazing people plopped in my life. Number one, my mom. Number Mama. two, my, yeah, and my sister. And, um, huh. yeah, I have good Those family. ladies are amazing, by they the way. They are amazing. They are. You know, and... Um, um, the one thing my sister took her family to Texas where I was so that the kids would know where I was and be able to understand the whole process right. of prison. I mean, right. that's such an aware and amazing thing to do. So I had uh, I had their support. I had support of um, really putting myself out there, sharing a little bit about my story and watching, waiting for them. Are they going to run or are they going to be interested? And most of the time they were interested. So they um, they wanted to hear more, or they'd say, "Wow, I bet you have some good stories," and so which gave me the go to not feel campfire talk, <laughs> campfire talk. Yeah, and we have stories. You know, you can be in prison for five years and have stories. So um, God, I think, placed a lot of amazing women in my life. Right. So, and what about you? I, you know, that's the title of the episode is Two Roads, One Destination. We do have a similar story that's so different. Mm. The one I heard that encouraged you the most was family. Mm. Well, it's similar with mine. It was my cousin, Will, and my little brother, Travis. Mm. You know, um, my father, he tried but didn't understand how to encourage too well mm-hmm. he loved me that's that's the inevitable every like he loved me but right. he didn't know how to encourage me and 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 honestly did he could he believe me no you know what i mean i've only pulled his chain and his leg how many years right, right? so okay brandon let's 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 hear some truth let so, me see you yeah you have, to, you. you have to prove this yeah. one so but my cousin will and my little brother travis they encouraged the hell out of me mm-hmm. they helped me they supported me they believe they still believe in me and uh you know what i didn't make so when i do time I, I make a lot of calls but they're calls to benefit my time like what do you mean Explain send that. me money send me <laughs> books send me you this you were one of those yeah i was and i was good at it too but <laughs> I this bet time you were. but but this time I didn't want that shit. Uh, this yeah. time I made two phone calls, maybe three or f- sometimes like I probably called six people the whole time I was down, but two to three of them consistently. My little brother, my cousin, and my father. Those are the ones that got my phone calls. Mm. You know, and my cousin Will was like, actually, I'll back it up. My stepmom said, you know, Brandon, I think this is the one, I think this set right here is going to be the one that changes you. Mm. And I don't know why she thought that because I ruined her life so many times too. Not her life, but you know, her situations that she was in so many times where she, she had no reason believing in me, but they encouraged me to believe in myself. My, my cousin, man, he, he has this way of motivating me. I I could probably move Mount McLaughlin with two hands with him behind me. Mm -hmm. Like I I'm very motivated with him behind me. You know what? And as you're saying that, that's what I think about you. 
You know, oh, when you're, shucks. I'm serious. Like, you know, when 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 there's people that come to the office and need help, I mean, the way you pour into them, it's like, hey, you could do anything. And it was learned because somebody told me that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, they just said something that absolutely is going to change the way I look at life. Mm. And you is know? that because you believed in him and you believed in yourself? I think. It, it was because I found my higher power and I was very keen to what I really wanted to do with my life. What that looked like, I wasn't sure. But when I spoke with Will about how I wanted to help people and I was journaling in prison about how I wanted to make all these amends and I wanted to bring people from addiction, you know, I wanted to help. Like, this is something that, like, I kind of I kind of spoke into my own life. Mm. You know, it was like God working through me, you know, Mm. like I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know it was going to be on the level that I'm at right now. Right. You know what I mean? I thought it was just going to be helping a homeboy out the trap house. (laughs) You You didn't know you were going to be doing a podcast with well, much more. Yeah. Like the podcast (laughs) is great and all, but like my nine to five, which you know is freaking amazing. It is like, I do this for a living. Take people like you were, like I was. Yeah, and, and, man. You know, when I think about me being out there and having someone like you and Stephanie available to talk to that is like meeting me where I am, not judging me in right. the least and just right. loving me up. It's like, where, who are these people you know, and it, where are they? And you said the key word is meeting them where they're at. Yeah. The judging can't happen because I was there even worse than they I can't. <laughs> that's way beyond my pay grade right there. But it's like. It also, it, it also took people to encourage me to find recovery. It helped, it helped me. People had to believe in me too. Like my cousin Will and Travis, my brother Travis, yeah, they encouraged me, but they aren't what helped me connect my life to recovery. Mm. Mm-hmm. My buddy Doug Duvall was. Mm. Yeah. Dougie was. He was in Oxford House. He was a chapter officer. Um, Oxford House is a, a clean and sober living. It's um, democratically ran and it's self-supporting. If you guys don't know about it, look it up, Google it. It's a great great program they're nationwide even worldwide and i think all states but three states have oxford houses um look it up and if it's something you guys want to do check it out there's my promotion for that but back to it i my homeboy doug like before i went to prison doug was about 160 pounds and he's a big boy and he was doing bad stuff and when i got out of prison i made a facebook and one of the first ones i seen was the you know the people you may know yeah was doug duvall I, it hurt, but I swiped left, dude. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it, right? Like last time I, I, I wanted something new. I swear to you, it wasn't a couple hours after I did that. I'm standing across from a treatment uh, facility. I was literally two days out of prison. I knew I needed to get some outpatient treatment. I, wa- I look around the corner and here comes Doug Duvall and he's about 200 pounds. Wow. Oh, I was freaking stoked because so he was my best, one of my best friends growing up. And when I seen him, like I could see his blue eyes from across the street. He was smiling and laughing and he was, I'm going to go ahead and say it. And if you could be mad, Doug, you were jolly. And you know, like he was just somebody that I forgot who he was when he was a kid. You know, he like those kid things came back out and I was just ran over to him, gave him a hug. And he told me what he was doing for his recovery. And I was kind of off put by Oxford because I was unsure of it. But then he told me all my friends were living there, Marcus Jackson, Kenny Myers, Doug, <laughs> uh, Sean Regula, all these people that I grew up with and used with before I went to prison. And they're all clean. I'm like, take me there. Mm. Take me there right now. Yeah. Like, and right when I went in there, you know, my church has a lot, has a lot to do with my recovery, but so do my dudes, mm. you know, like those guys, they showed me and helped me learn how to live. I'm not talking about how to 
cook dinner. I'm talking about how to pay my cell phone bill, mm. how to apply for a job and make a resume. Mm. A resume? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? To get a real job. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Marcus um, put me on at, with, his, with his painting company, and I started painting. Like we, and then like I was watching them. I'm like, man, these aren't the, these aren't the people I was using with. Like these guys have goals. These guys have desire. These guys have dreams. So, so did, did that make you think that because they were the way they were and now they're sober, that that was a thing that was attractive to you and that you knew you I kn- could do it? I knew it was possible yeah. because I'm sorry. And they can all talk all the smack they want, but I, I, nobody's better than me and I'm not better than anybody. I always believe that. Anything these guys can do, I can do. Yeah. So now it was my time to make a goals list. Mm-hmm. And it started with small ones and worked to big ones and I've knocked all of them off out but one now. Wow. So it's like, you know, that's who, that's who helped me make my connection to recovery. Mm. Do you have anybody that did that with you? Well, um, it was probably about a month before I got out of prison. I... Um, I sent an email to someone that I was sober with before in Dana Point, and I said, hey, it's Christy. I don't know if you know where I've been for the last few years, but I'm I'm going to be um, in your area. I'm moving there, and I really need to connect to a woman. So I, I set myself up to connect to somebody, and uh, he said, I have just the perfect person. So when you get out, let me know. And um, I did, and he did, and I ended up going to a meeting, and I got out. And in the past, I never really shared about me in meetings very much and this time I was I I I was afraid and I was also bold and I said mm. uh, my name's Christy uh, I need help I just got out of prison <laughs> and everyone turns around I got a question yeah <laughs> I got a question. Yeah, okay, let's just get that out. Right. Let's get, get that out right now. And her name is Gina, and she came up to me, and she's the perfect person. She's my person, and she walks through life with me. She helps me understand that, you know, feelings are, are not real all the time. Helps me understand that, um, you know, she said she always sings the song, Getting to Know You. And, mm, you know, like getting at the, to Know Yeah, at the, end of every, yeah. <laughs> at the end of every phone call, I'm like, Argh! but now it's funny because my habit is to want to do that to other people. You know, she would say a lot of things like that. So it really, without telling me what to do, she just created this path and this loving environment for me to discover who I was and Beautiful. who I could be. And and yeah, and we're still great friends and she's my mentor. Man, Christy, I really do appreciate that. Um, I really enjoyed having story time, you know, and bringing us back and seeing where we were to where we are. I really believe that we are going to do some monumental movements around here. And um, I sure hope you guys really enjoyed it too, because I know there's just so much more and it's going to go so much deeper. And I'm so looking forward to hearing more, getting to know more about Mm. you. And even, even as I speak, I'm learning more about what went on with me because I don't remember it all. So it's pretty neat to talk about it a little bit so you guys join us thank you for joining us for our first episode join us for our second episode we'll be talking about leading by example and why that's important to us thanks brandon you know um i think it's so important for us to share our stories because a lot of times we feel um that there may be shame or will people understand it but the more we share i think the more connected we get to ourselves and it releases it right yeah it really does releases the power yes and I have an amazing quote by Maya Angelou. Do you want to hear it? I do. By okay. who? Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou. She says, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. 
we all have our stories. So, you know, the more we talk about it, the the more, like you said, it releases. And I think it's and it, and and the more it connects us to other people, right? Which is what we're meant for connection, right? Yep. Yep. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. All right, you guys. We really appreciate you guys staying with us. Um, Like, subscribe, star us out. Is that what they do? Is that how they're supposed to do it? Are they supposed to rate us us by stars? Is that what they are? Star us out. Star us out. Just give us the old five ski, would you? We need all of those stars. But we do appreciate you guys being with us today and letting us tell a little bit about about our story. Thank you. We're excited for the adventure we're about to be on with you. And, um, We believe in you. Yeah, we do. And we know there's hope. Um, We love you and thank you guys. God bless. Bye, guys. Well, thank you guys for sharing today. It's really amazing to hear your stories and part of your lives. I know we have so much to fill in in the gaps because I've heard a lot about (laughs) both of your journey and how it's led you to here. Um, The views and opinions of Brandon and Christy are their own and are not those necessarily of the Reclaiming Lives organization or our board, uh, also the sponsoring organization. This podcast should not be considered professional advice and is for entertainment purposes only. (laughs) 